You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, let's celebrate what God's been doing in our church. That's pretty cool. Hey, well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. I, I want to say thank you to the men and, uh, that went on this uh, recent missions trip out to the Navajo Nation. Um, at this church, we gather, uh, we grow, and then we go. And Jesus said, go into all nations. This is a nation. And so I want to say special thanks to the uh, men and women that uh, went on, or the men uh, that went on that trip. That was a men's ministry. And somebody asked me, can ladies go in the future? Yes, absolutely. But that was a special trip that we took out of our North Valley uh, men's ministry. And let me tell you why it's so important, because COVID-19 hit perhaps hardest that uh, community, that, that group of people than anybody else in the United States of America. And so... Uh, as a result of uh, uh, you guys, uh, there was a, many individuals that said, we want to financially um, make that trip happen, gave to our hope offering, and specifically God had impressed upon their heart to go to the Navajo Nation. So I got to say, hey, whatever they need, we financially can cover it because of the generosity of the church and the service of these men. So again, let's celebrate that just for a moment. And thank you for giving financially to make that trip happen. So. Um, guys took off time and work and uh, things they could be doing over the weekends as well, and so we're grateful for that. Special thanks to Pastor Joshua and Steve Sutton, one of our uh, leaders in our church that serves on the elder team, uh, really uh, gave a lot of good leadership to that trip. One thing that you don't know, but just cool fact story, um, Steve's married to a wonderful lady by the name of Priscilla Sutton. Her father was the very first Navajo Nation's missionary that brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to that tribe that we know of, and as a result, thousands and thousands of people are believers today. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? We can celebrate that. Well, hey, as well, I want to give you a quick update on our campus. If you were here last week, I hope you wore flip-flops because you probably got wet. So, I mean, literally never have I seen it before. It was so flooded. I mean, I was overwhelmed to see kind of that, uh, what was happening with the weather. I know uh, Stephen, our uh, campus director, really had a lot going on with a number of folks really pitching in and helping out at the last moment to keep this place as dry as possible. But never before has there perhaps been a more important time for your general fund giving. Um, we had a lot of devastation, a lot of uh, setback on our campus. If you noticed, we don't even have a monument sign anymore. It blew over in the storm. So we don't even have a monument sign on I-17 anymore. Um, and so thankfully, we do have insurance, but insurance isn't going to cover everything. So general fund giving does really make a big difference, especially in a time like now. Um, additionally, before I get started, I just want to say we still plan on, regardless of the setback, we're always going to have a comeback. Uh, we're going to open up that multi-purpose building by the end of this year. So many of you gave financially to see that open up for kids and youth and uh, uh, to be able to facilitate that. So we're praying and pursuing to see that happen, that big building as you drive in on your right, that building. Uh, we're still planning and pursuing to see that thing open up. So thank you all for giving uh, faithfully and serving uh, to, to make this church a great church. Um, well, we've been in a series called Summer in the Psalms. And uh, we've been asking some of the life's big questions over the last uh, few weeks, like, what is God's purpose for my life? Questions like, um, 
is life going to get any better? We've asked the question is, why am I uh, not as happy as I want to be? Or what's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? And so today we're looking at the subject of happiness. We're going to wrap up this series. Next week I'm starting the Gospel of John. It's going to be a long journey. It's going to be great. Um, The message uh, series that we're calling it is a truth for life. Every one of us need kind of truth for everyday life. And so you're going to get that out of the Gospel of John next week. But today, I thought it'd be interesting if we just kind of see just how popular this idea is about happiness. So I started with Google, because, you know, Google will take you anywhere. So I started with Google to see what is the number one how-to, like how-to whatever. So here's what I came up with. You can see, I don't know if you can see it there, but the number one search in this area is how to be happy. People want to know, how do I be happy? It's very interesting. Probably not happy if they're searching for it. Um, But then the other one is how to be smart. I thought that was funny. I thought, well, you're probably not smart if you're looking to Google to make you smart. And then how to be cool. Definitely probably not cool if you're looking for Google to take you there. Uh, How to be a better person. I thought that was really cool. Uh, And then how to be a millionaire. (laughs) Google apparently has got some answers for you to figure out that. So, um, well, it, a great place for us to look as believers is the Psalms. It's uh, some of the most inspiring, uplifting literature in our Bibles. Um, it was used for public worship services for the nation of Israel. It was also used for devotional material to kind of encourage uh, uh, believers in their hardships that they can find happiness in their hardships. And so uh, today in, a, in American culture, it's very interesting, the very idea of happiness has actually been woven into the very fabric and the ideology of what we believe. Uh, I mean, even in 1776, the 13 United States of America declared independence, um, independence as a God-given right. And they clearly said, you probably know this if you've been to school uh, here and remember this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, which among these are, help me out, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There you go. And maybe you saw the Will Smith movie too and thought the pursuit of happiness, that was really cool. But this pursuit of happiness is the question that I want to get to today. Here's my first question for those of you that have been a Christian for perhaps more than a year. That's probably a bunch of you. Um, Do you think God wants you to be happy in life? Do you think he wants you to be a happy person? And uh, I would say years ago, perhaps that God wants us to be holy, but maybe not necessarily happy. But as I looked at the scripture a lot more, I realized this is that no, 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 no. God wants us to be happy because holiness is the is the pathway that leads to happiness. And so today, maybe you've thought for a long time, well, God cares far more about my holiness. He doesn't really care about my happiness. Today, I want to show you in the scriptures that no, God does want you happy. He does. And that even idea that's woven into um, the declaration of independence, that pursuit of happiness is so important for our Christian witness as believers, that happiness is a part of the Christian life. And so let me back it up first with some church history, then some Bible, and then the Psalms. 
So in church history, just so you know, um, this idea of happiness and holiness has been there for a very, very long time. Only in recent years have Christians tried to adopt this idea that you just pursue a life of holiness and forget about the happiness. Um, the Puritans, such as uh, Jonathan Edwards, a great American preacher, teacher, a revivalist in the 1700s, along with uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, out of London in the 1800s, all used words like happy. They all used words like happiness in their sermons, in their writing, and everything they did that related to Christ-centered uh, con- context. So the idea of happiness didn't just mean happenstance. But they taught this basic idea that if you are a believer, that you, and living a life of holiness, you ought to be the happiest person on the planet. And so that God does care tremendously. The Puritan preacher out of England in the 1600s, Thomas Brooks, said something like this, God is the author of all true happiness. He said that he, God is the donor of all true happiness. So God is a author. He writes things into uh, their storyline, you, God's story and plan and purpose for you as the author of your life, the perfecter of your life. He wants to write a story where there is great levels of happiness. Some of you are like, I'm not that happy right now. And I even am trying to live a holy life right now. So what's wrong? Um, the, the, uh, the Puritan writer said as well is that God is the donor, meaning that he donates happiness to us. He is the giver of happiness. It's a good way, I think, for us to think about it. Um, additionally, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this uh, phrase. He says, holiness is the road to happiness. In other words, that uh, if you're going to live a happy life, the pathway is holiness. Um, some of you are familiar, perhaps, with a more modern-day preacher-teacher, uh, 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 John Piper, and he says this, uh, we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. We are most satisfied in life when God is most glorified. When we give our lives to God and serve him, love him, live for him, that's when we will find the most satisfaction. So contrary to the idea that God just wants you holy and he doesn't want you happy, I would say it's far beyond church history or good Bible preachers and teachers um, that support that idea that you should be happy and holy at the same time. The Apostle Paul said it like this in his letter to Philippians. Um, He said, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say it. Help me out. Rejoice. Notice he did not say, be happy or be holy in the Lord. Again, I will tell you to be holy. No, he said, rejoice. The word to rejoice all the time. And so as a believer, we need to accept this idea. I think that we should be happy people. And you say happy like uh, trite and uh, 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 fake happiness? No, but give me a break. Shouldn't we always find something to be happy about even in the hard times? Don't we have something to be grateful for even in the difficult times? Well, the problem is today in American culture is that according to research, We are some of the most unhappy people. According to research, Americans are the most unhappy they've ever been in the last 50 years. Um, We've seen that spike, and perhaps that's why Google's number one search is how to be happy, because so many people are unhappy. Um, So then what do we do to get happy? Well, we go to things that are not going to really make us happy, but they're going to hurt us. We go to uh, things that, can, that end up being addictions or bad habits to find our happiness. Um, last, uh, over 
2020 was dominated by COVID-19, and many of us have fair reason to struggle with happiness. We lost our routines. We lost our family traditions. Some of you have lost loved ones, perhaps most of all. And worst of all, some have felt they've lost their faith and trust in God during uh, this difficult season. But today, in today's passage, what I want to do is help you to discover the road of holiness that leads you to the greatest level of happiness. And so in Psalms 1, let's look together. The psalmist says, blessed, that word means happy. Psalms 1, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. Now I want you to zero in for just a moment on this idea where he talks about these streams, these streams of water. Um, it's best translated as irrigation canals in verse 3. Uh, these streams of water in Palestine, uh, they would pretty much on a very regular basis dry up. It's like when you drive through the desert or you're out driving around, you see these washes or even names of creeks. If you're on your way up to Payson or some pine top or something like that, and you see these river names and you're like, there ain't no river, there ain't no river, there's no river, maybe a creek, uh, but in these irrigation canals, uh, oftentimes the streams, they regularly dried up. So they created irrigation canals, which were, uh, uh, were, were sourced by great rivers. So the psalmist, what he does here is he actually uses some really cool imagery to paint a picture. And I want to help contextualize that for our experience as a resident of the Phoenix Valley. I did some research about our own canal system, and little did I know that we have more uh, uh, riverways, if you will, than Amsterdam or Venice. Uh, we have more than 180 miles throughout our valley of these canal systems, these riverways. Uh, every year, my wife and I try to make it a trip where we get out uh, on a bike rides and we go down to downtown Scottsdale, South Scottsdale or whatever, and get on those canals and ride our bikes. Uh, and if you've been around for a while in the Phoenix Valley, these canals actually have some history. Like I heard crazy stories of folks jumping in those canals as kids, and they would uh, grab a ski rope, and Uncle Billy or Uncle Tom would drive a truck as they're skiing down the canals in the old days. Now they fence them all off and put you on safe little bike paths. Um, but these canals have got a major history to our city and our valley, and the life in our valley. So I'm going to give you a little history lesson real quick. In the valley, these canals were developed really by three groups. The ancient Hokum Indians, the pioneers, and then the federal government. We have about uh, nine different canals. And originally, it was the Indians that set the groundwork for today's major canal system. They built these hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but it was in the 1860s that the central Arizona gold rush, rush took place and brought in an influx of uh, uh, immigrants and pioneers and builders, including an ex-Confederate cavalryman by the name of Jack Swingley. Uh, it was in 1867 he formed a company and at, at a gold camp in Wickenburg, and the rest was absolutely history. Basically, everybody went canal crazy and started building canals everywhere. And so 
then the canal system, once it came forth, now you could have a civilization. And even the name that we have with Phoenix, that idea comes out of that concept that there was nothing here and then something is reborn. And so it is, uh, Jack saw the potential in the valley. He saw the old canals and thought, if we could bring water through these and get these working, we'd have a massive city, a prosperous city. So today, there's more than 180 miles of canals that serve our valley. And here's my point. Without these canals, there is no Phoenix. You wouldn't be here. It would be a dry, dusty, dead, old desert that there would be no major city. We are the fifth largest city in the country. We're growing in leaps and bounds constantly. People from the Midwest and California by the truckloads are coming in. Folks are coming in everywhere to be here. And I'll tell you, if there were no canal systems, there would be no life. The same is true that the psalmist is pointing at is this. So I want you to sink into your mind that there is the, the life of happiness is dependent upon a canal system for your spiritual life. You will have no life of happiness and joy unless you get the canal uh, principle. It is this. Understand this, that when we look at the Psalms, the water represents God's truth and his grace. And when God's grace and truth flows into your life through a canal system, that canal system is holiness. It's your personal effort to ensure that you're going to live a life that's God-honoring so that you can be a channel of God's grace and His truth in your life. And as a result of that, you will experience life. You will experience the Christian life. Jesus says, I came to give life, help me out, and to give it abundantly. So how do you do that? How do you experience that life? Well, it starts with a belief and say, I believe in you, Jesus. I want to live for you, Jesus. And you are, in a sense, building a canal system through your heart and soul that says, I will do things. I will create things, opportunities, so that God's grace, God's truth can flow in my life and through my life. And as a result, there'll be life everywhere. And so Here's what the psalmist says. In a sense, he wraps up, and, and we'll get to some practical application. He says, there is a difference between the way the righteous people live and the way the wicked live. Um, so he creates this, another analogy. He says in uh, Psalms, in the, verse 4, he says, but the wicked are not so. In other words, he's saying, uh, they're, they're different. But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. So let me pause real quick for a moment. First, he said, if you are a blessed person, a happy person, you are like a tree. Um, everybody say with me, I want to be like a tree. One, two, three. I want to be like a tree. Okay, you want to be like a tree. You do not want to be like the chaff. These are the metaphors. And you want to be planted by like a canal where there's incredible streams of God's grace and truth saturating your root systems. In the old days, it was the big gigantic cottonwood trees that were along the canals. Now there's none. And so uh, he says, but the chaff, they're different. The wind drives them away. Chaff are like husk of winnowed grain or dried grasses that were burned up, blown away. And they often symbolized kind of uh, separating good from evil. And so what the psalmist is doing is saying, you want to be like a tree, you do not want to be like chaff. Why is that? Well, because uh, trees are living. Chaff is dead. Trees are stable. Chaff is unstable. 
uh, trees survive and thrive even in a storm if they've got a deep root system. You saw a lot of trees that were blown over. They didn't have deep roots. They didn't have deep roots. Uh, Chaff, it just blows away. You'll never see it again. The scripture, the psalmist is saying basically, happy is the one who is like a tree. Every believer ought to be like a tree. You sink your roots. You grow in God's grace and his truth. And you want, by the way, all sorts of canal systems coming through your life, piping in from the endless reservoir of God's grace and his mercy and his truth into your life to bring you life so that you can grow and that you can bear fruit in your life. So do you get the point? Do you get the idea? So he he wraps up in verse five. The psalmist says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. In other words, they're going to blow over. They're going to fall over. Uh, Wicked people don't know God, don't love God. Don't live for God. He says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So how can you apply this passage to your life? I think there's three plain, simple application points that are either explicit, meaning it's clearly in the Psalms that I just read, or it's implicit, meaning like you can use logical reasoning to figure this out. Um, There's three, and I'll give you, if I have enough time, I'll give you four. But number one is how to be happy. The happiest person you possibly can be is avoid negative people. Um, That's what he said right off the bat. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk, stand, or sit. Avoid negative people. Some of you you are looking at your spouse like, do I avoid my spouse? (laughs) They're pretty negative. Um, maybe at times you call for a timeout until there can be a right perspective. Um, this is was Israel's problems as believers all the time. They always grumbled. They always complained. They were so negative. The scripture doesn't start with blessed is a man who loves God and worships God, nor does the scripture start in verse one, blessed is a man who delights in the law of the Lord. It doesn't start in verse 1 with, blessed is the man who just uh, loves God. The scripture actually starts with, blessed is the one, and gives a negative exhortation who doesn't do something, doesn't hang out with these kinds of people. Why is that? Like, I thought about that this week. Like, why would the psalmist start with, like, blessed is the person, happy is the person who doesn't hang out with those kinds of people? And I thought about it. I thought, it's because this, right? You and I are so easily influenced by people, perhaps even more than prayer or Bible study. Let me say that again. You and I are so easily influenced far more oftentimes than we would admit than prayer or Bible study. Meaning, like, when we spend time with a negative person that drains our energy, then we feel negative. Or when we spend time with toxic people, we find out we feel like we get toxic at times. Um, And so I think the psalmist is just a realist. He's not necessarily an idealist. He's a realist, meaning like, this is just the way it works. You you need to avoid these kinds of people. So let me break down the passage for you. First, he says, don't walk with them. This means that you, you should not spend time with people that are wicked people against God, don't love God, don't like God, scoff God, mock God, anti-Christian, anti-church, don't walk with them is what the scripture says. Don't walk with them. 
means these can't be your running buddies. You, you, you shouldn't do that. That's what the scripture means by that. Secondly, he says, don't stand. That idea of stand means don't, don't just walk with them so long. Now you're standing still. That word stand means actually in the original context means that you don't take a stand with them. It means like, uh, so like when I would say to you, like, what's your stance? Well, I'd stand up for this or I stand for that. This is what we stand for as a household. This is what I stand for. Well, the scripture's saying, don't you dare take a stand with them. Do not. It is not just, don't, don't just endorse them. Don't, don't in, accept that kind of life and thinking into your own life. So you don't stand with them. And then he goes so far to say is don't sit with them. That means the idea that you sit down and that you listen to the illogic and accept, perhaps even blindly, the ideas, ideology, the philosophy that is antithetical to the Bible, antithetical to the Christian faith. You don't sit in those seats. That's a hard pressure for today, especially for students in school systems, where the school systems are under attack in so many different ways, um, where we have antithetical ideas and philosophies penetrating all throughout our educational system in the junior high, the high school, and in the college system. Um, You as parents, you better help saturate the soul of the child because you are the primary, you are the biggest influencer into their life. And so this, the, the uh, psalmist says, you don't, stand, don't walk with them, don't stand with them, don't sit with them. Um, let me ask you a question. Is there someone in your life that's toxic right now to your mental, emotional, spiritual well-being? Is there somebody? Chances are you probably shouldn't hang out with them at all. But then some of you say, uh, well, I feel like, you know, I should, you know, uh, you know, even secular writing, an article I read in Forbes magazine basically said this, you want to be happiest you could ever be? They started with the very same idea, don't spend time with negative people. So it's not like it's just Christian news. It's like, this is common sense, like do not spend time, too much time with these kinds of people. The Proverbs say in a sense this, here's a paraphrase for the passage we just read in Psalms 1, is happy are those who reject the advice of evil people. I mean, you will be happy when you reject the advice of evil people. Who is your counsel in life? Who are you listening to? What forms your worldview? What forms how you think and see things? Happy is the one who rejects the advice of evil, who do not follow the example of sinners or join uh, those who have no use for God. You know, the sad reality is, is that you and I as Christians feel obligated at times to spend time with negative people because we want to be a good guy or a good gal. You know, we want to be a witness and a light in the darkness. And so uh, unless you're called to do that, I would say be very, very cautious. And we should seek to be a light to the darkness around us. We absolutely should. But here's some questions or some things I want you to consider First and foremost, if you feel called by God to spend time with toxic people, anti-God-loving people, um, non-Christians that uh, scoff and mock God, then you should repeat after me this first phrase. Um, I can't fix them. Let's try that together. I can't fix them, but Jesus can. You are not the Savior. Jesus is. So you don't have to save everybody. 
if they have a toxic influence into your life, you need to realize that you can't fix them because you could spend a lifetime trying to fix them. But Jesus can. Additionally, I would encourage you to set boundaries, create boundaries. Uh, Henry Cloud and John Townsend have a book called uh, Boundaries. And these are people that are toxic people, wicked people. This is why we have lawyers. This is why we have guns. This is why we do things the way we do to protect ourselves because you need boundaries in life. There are wicked and evil people you can see in the news all day long, rapes, killings, murders, crime, all that. This is why we have police officers. This is the reality of the world that we live in. So you have to protect yourself, realize you can't fix them, set boundaries for your life. This is what the psalmist says, don't spend time, don't walk, don't stand, don't sit with these kinds of folks. It's too powerful of an influence. And some of you say, well, I got to do it. Jesus is calling me to. Okay, good. Do it like Jesus did it. He, always, he never went alone. He always sent people two by two. He, when he sent his disciples, he sent the 12. When he sent his disciples, he sent 70 on one trip and another trip, 72. So you just don't go alone. Additionally, I would encourage you, if you feel called to make a difference in a very uh, toxic environment of relationships, you have to ask the question of who's influencing who. This is what I do with my kids. I tell them, like, who is influencing who? Are you and your friends influencing that group of friends, or are they influencing you? And it's the same truth for us. And lastly, I would say, if you feel called to do this, you get help. You don't go alone. You get professional counselors. You get doctors. You get a psychiatrist. You get lawyers. You get police. You get pastors. You do whatever you've got to do to create a healthy environment. So here's what I want to encourage you to do is, yes, you should spend time with unbelievers, but you need to realize that you have limitations as well. And this is why the psalmist is so strong on this. And here's, here's a saying that you might have heard before. But I believe this is true. If you showed me your friends, who's on your friend list, I would say, I bet I could show you your future. If you showed me who you hang out with, I bet I could tell you how your future is going to turn out. Because uh, birds of a feather flock together, that is true. When you're spending time with people that love and live for God and out making a difference for God, chances are you're going to do the same thing. Um. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. If you want to hang with monkeys, then your life is going to be a circus. That's what it's going to be. You literally, if you, if you just jack around, monkey around all the time, your life will look like that. You could be a grown person, but you still act like a fool. The Bible has easy categories. The wise people of the world, the foolish people of the world, and evil people. You do not want to be hanging out with evil people. Evil people kill people. They murder people. They uh, steal from people. They cheat people. They lie. They, they will crush you. This is why, again, we have lawyers, doc, uh, lawyers and guns, and we have police and all that. Then there's the fools, the monkeys. They just monkey around all the time. And that can get you real messed up real fast. So the call is, is as a believer, is we need to, number two, we need to walk with the wise. Super practical. This is the implicit truth that's anchored in the Psalms. He said in the very beginning, do not go hang out with these kind of evil, wicked people. Don't do that. So what would be the opposite of that? The opposite would be is just don't walk uh, with those kind of people. But the opposite would be is to walk with the wise. So here's what Proverbs 13, 20 says. I love it. It says, walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. Super easy. 
that's what, in a sense, you need to walk with wise people. If you've got a, a challenge in your life and you don't know how to break through your barrier uh, professionally or in your marriage life or mental, emotional challenges, here's what you do. You just go get wisdom. That's what you do. Because as St. Augustine said, the famous church bishop, North African, black African theologian that shaped much of the way we think about Protestant theology and Catholic theology said this, all truth, that's God's truth. So that means if your counselor, your psychiatrist, your doctor, the legal support, all that stuff, if it's true and it's working, that's getting wisdom. You get wisdom in the Bible, in outside of the Bible as well. You need wisdom. You need to walk with wise people that have been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. So what does it mean to walk with the wise? Here's three things for you outline uh, takers, note makers. Here it is. I would say this Bible verse implies a couple of things. One is that you have friendship with wise people. Uh, meaning these are like family members, uh, 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 friends, co-workers, neighbors that are just good godly people. This could be come from a series of areas. This could be consultants. This could be believers at church. These are safe people that you trust. If you want to move forward in life, uh, you need to walk with wise people. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. Wisdom takes wise people to get it. You, yes, you got God's word, but don't you and I know we need people in our life to help us to get it? Secondly, I think this implies frequency. He says that you walk with people, meaning like you don't just go on one walk, you go walk throughout your whole life. It's a spiritual journey and you have people that you're constantly spending time with, growing with, learning from, listening to. This isn't an appointment of a one-time meeting. It's a commitment of an ongoing experience. This is what we have community groups for. This is why we have a, a ministry teams and then lastly, I would say, you go forward in life. You go forward with people. You look, you're looking for people that are going somewhere. They have a direction. They have an agenda. They, they want to go somewhere in life. Um, these are people that are moving forward in life, and when they fall down, they get back up. Wise people in the scripture that we've learned today, they're the ones that are going somewhere. Number three, I would say, you just grow deeper into God's word. You grow deeper into God's word, probably like never before in American history, will there be such an attack on the authority, inerrancy, sufficiency uh, of the Bible. You need Bible as in your blood. If we, you were to get cut, you should bleed Bible. Um, you need more of God's word in your life to saturate your soul, your heart, and your mind with the idea of God's grace and his truth all throughout your worldview. Um, this is what the psalmist meant. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That means ongoingly. That means a habit of doing something. Uh, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season. In other words, there's going to be fruitfulness in your life in seasons. Some of you get super discouraged and depressed because you don't see the fruitfulness as fast as you want to. But you got to remember the Christian life is like there's seasons. There's seasons where things are going great, and there's seasons when they're not. But you can always find happiness in the hard times. And so he says that, that we're in, in, in his leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. And so let me just break down the analogy a little bit further, and I'll wrap up and give you my last point. Uh, but is this, is that the trees are the believers. They're the righteous. They're the wise folks. Uh, they're planted 
in an area where they're going to experience God's grace and truth, the water, the streams of life that was mentioned. The canals represent your habit of holiness, meaning what you do to ensure that God's grace and truth, that stream of life into your soul, your mind, your heart, everything continues to flow in. You need to create those. Just like we see concrete on those canals, man created those. Just before that, it was dirt. Well, mankind created those. Why? Because we needed water. What is the water? The the water is God's grace and truth. You need constant source of God's grace and truth into your life if you're going to live the life that God's called you to. And the fruit represents the life and the happiness that we find in all all of life. So even in the Westminster Catechism uh, in church history, the the question was, um, what is the chief end of man? Meaning, what's the big purpose? And it was this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, that God's created us to enjoy all that he has, but we need his grace. We need his truth to, to, to enjoy that. And then number four, I would challenge you is to give your life away. Jesus said it like this. He says, uh, it is more blessed to give than it is to help me out. Receive. Meaning there's greater blessing in giving than there is receiving. And when we see uh, monuments and, and memorials about people's lives, it's more, it's usually about what they gave and contributed rather than what they took out of the world. Um, your life will be far more valuable and fruitful and uh, fulfilling for you personally when you focus on giving rather than receiving. And we have an entitlement culture where we focus and fixate on what we can get. And as a Christian, you want to move away from a consumer mentality where you're constantly focused on what you can receive, but rather than focus on a contributor mentality where I want to contribute to the well-being of other people. And so give your life away. Jesus said it like this, and here's a paraphrase, give away your life. You'll find life given back. But not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Give not, give, giving, not getting is the way. Generosity begets generosity. I want to close out with a story and tell you a story about an individual that made a big difference in my life. Um, more than 11 years ago, I was uh, getting ready to move out to Phoenix, Arizona and plant a church. And... Um, In my preparation time, um, we were challenged to raise financial support to come out here, and I was afraid of doing that because I thought, man, I I don't want to do that the rest of my life is raise financial support to come out and start a church. And anyway, we did. We felt God was calling us to that, and, and a great principle for that is wherever God guides, he also provides. And so I remember in this effort to kind of move forward and communicate our vision that God was calling us to go plant a church, I began to share that God's calling us to start a new work. And uh, at the time, we didn't exactly know it was Phoenix, uh, but I shared that in front of a congregation, my home church back in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'll never forget, a man came up to me, and his name is uh, Ed Knight. He was actually my Sunday school teacher when I was a kid. Just a couple of times, he had a, a, a memorable encounter with me. I was a rebellious kid, ran away from the Lord, came to faith in Christ in my teenage years, and then worked as a youth pastor for many more years. And he said, God spoke to me, Ryan, that I'm supposed to support you. And I said, man, that's amazing. And uh, I looked at his life and I watched his life. And uh, he was an average guy in the church. It was a 
pretty affluent church, a very uh, bunch of uh, business guys, movers and shakers in our community. Uh, he was a dentist. He owned his own practice. Uh, he liked to fish on the weekends. He had a wonderful family, and he was involved in church. That's all I knew about him. Then on our first, when we came out here and started moving, he, he, I got a check in the mail. I opened it up, and it was the biggest check I'd ever seen for financial support. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And I remember calling him and asking him, is this a one-time gift or, or what? You know, and he says, no, that's going to be a monthly gift. I said, man, that's incredible. And I accepted it with generosity and excitement from his generosity. And then as time went by, I called him back and I said, listen, I've been teaching our church about tithing. We were raising support for uh, our staff and giving 100% back of the proceeds back to the church. And for the first five years of this church, you need to know I never drew a salary from the tithes and offerings. We raised 100% of our support outside of the state of Arizona so that everything could go into ministry and missions. And I said, I have a conviction though that if you're not giving back to your local church, maybe you shouldn't give to us. And that was a big, hard thing for me to say. And he said, well, I need you to know I am giving faithfully to our home church, Ryan. In fact, I'm tithing and I do even offerings. I'm like, man, you make a lot of money. <laughs> and he said, uh, I said, well, I got to ask another question. He said, what is it? I said, is it uh, easy to do that? He said, no, it's the hardest thing I do every month write you a check. And I said, man, that's amazing. I watched his life, studied his life. And every time I went back to Little Rock, I spent time with him. He would smoke cigars and sit on the back porch, great old country guy. I would just sit there and, well, you know, I'd just be there, you know. And so then he uh, would always tell me stories about him mentoring young kids, fatherless children, uh, children that didn't have dads. And he told me all about that. Then he told me about all the other church plants that he was excited to start investing into and told me about how much joy that he had in seeing our church thrive. And here's the good news about this, is that today you are actually part of the ripple effect of my, my friend, um, Dr. Knight, because when I was sitting with him on the back porch one day when it was raining, he said, Ryan, I want to give you a gift and it's not money. I said, what is it? He said, it's a commentary set. It's called The Treasury of David uh, from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It was when he went through a depression in life, he wrote this commentary set that accompanies all the Psalms. And it helped me when I went through a crisis, when the Medicaid and, and Medicare and all the laws changed, I almost lost my business. But I looked to God's word and it strengthened me and gave me a lot of joy. And so today I'm giving you my favorite commentary set. I said, man, that's amazing. He said, you're going to go through a hard time. And when you go through a hard time, sink into God's word and look to God's truth for your strength. And so guess what? This is my second series of taught out of the Psalms. And it's that commentary set out of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who himself went through great seasons of challenge. And today, I wouldn't be standing here and probably uh, teaching you this series if it weren't for Dr. Knight. My point in saying all, all this is that the best life is a life that gives away, not receives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be difference makers. I thank you that it seems clear in Scripture that the road to happiness is paved with holiness. Uh, we want to get in line with our God-given design 
how you made us, how you formed us, how you fashioned us, using our skills, our abilities to bring you honor, to make a difference in this world. Lord, we want to move forward together. We pray that we would have the courage and the strength to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.